0: Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, Science, Politics, Realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. On today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sophia Thomas, the current president of the AAMP, which is the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. It is an honor to have you here. I'm excited to do an interview with you and uh, tell me a little about yourself and your background.
1: Well, great. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. I have been a nurse practitioner for 23 years. I graduated with uh, my master's in 1996 and and practiced for several years, Uh, went back. To school, um, I guess about seven years ago to um, get my doctorate degree. So I, I hold my doctorate of nursing practice now. I practice at a federally qualified healthcare center outside New Orleans in a little community called Kenner. I'm uh, family practice and pediatric certified. Uh, my current patient population is primarily the med- medically underserved. I care for a lot of um, Hispanics and other minority patients. And really, you know, treat diseases across the spectrum spectrum of, of primary care.
0: Excellent. Yeah, we do a lot in our, in our rural community. We do a lot of, of that kind of practice as well. Um, and uh, we have a large uh, Indian health population, native health population here as well. So we do a lot of that. And um, so what got you invested and interested in advocacy? Because it's one thing to be a nurse practitioner, of course, and it's a whole other thing to get heavily involved in your state and the national association. How did you get there?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question and as I think about it it just seemed like a natural progression I, I was thinking back and in high school I was voted most dependable um, which you know most people can claim other other you know best at whatever in high school but I was I was most dependable and from the time I became a nurse I was always the, the, the person that got really engaged in in my practice um, when I worked in the hospital I was always volunteering to help to do more. I I always wanted to make a difference. And, you know, people go into nursing because they say they want to help people. You ask a nurse, why did you go into nursing? And the first thing they'll tell you is I want to help people. And for me, um, you know, helping people just extended beyond um, the direct care that I was providing to patients. I wanted to help my colleagues uh, with professional practice and help the profession and, and do my part. Uh, very early on, I joined, um, I always felt it was important to join your professional organization. So whatever profession you are, I think it's important to join your professional organization because that's the organization that's advocating for you as a professional. Whether you're a CRNA, whether you're a nurse practitioner, whether you're a physician, an attorney, I think it's important that you join your professional organization and then get as engaged as, as you can. I, um, joined AANP uh, as a very young NP, immediately um, started volunteering. I I, um, was on the board of directors. I served as a a state representative. I progressed through AANP to president by serving. I I think I've served on countless committees and done special projects and things like that. Served on the board a couple of times, served as a Louisiana state representative a couple of times and um so it's just culminated into uh, me becoming uh president of the association which um i'm very proud of it's uh i have to admit it's a lot of work a lot more than um than it was uh than i knew it was when i ran for the position you know people say would you would you now that you know everything that's involved uh would you do it again and and i, I pause and i say yes you know i would because i think the work is very important but this has been a um uh, literally i'm always on um 365 days uh wow. nights weekends uh the whole nine yards it's been a, a lot of travel a lot of meetings i get to meet a lot of great people all across the country so um it's definitely been an adventure
0: i think uh what is a commonality between a lot of leaders in many professions is that um they come to a point where they realize they just can't help themselves. It's built into their DNA to continue down that path and of professional advocacy.
1: Well, I I think it is. And, and, you know, in any organization, you have some people that are, um, it seems like they're always the same people doing the work and, um, they move from position to position, but I I think it's that they, they like to stay engaged and make a difference. And there's the history there, you know, but then too, we want to mentor the young, professionals to come up and, and take our positions. Right. You got to have a future. Yeah. You have to have a future.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that falls into the the Pareto principle, right? Uh, 10% of the people do about 90% of the work. But the reality I think is, is as long as most people are members, they're doing part of their, they're meeting part of their professional advocacy just by doing that because it helps the work get done.
1: Exactly. It does. It helps the work get done. And, and the more people that are members of their professional association it just strengthens the association's voice to be able to get that work done yeah,
0: first step in professional citizenship
1: yep exactly
0: so uh, then after you after you you know become a the aamp president i think there's going to be a number of people that will listen to the podcast that may not know a lot about the aamp and it just so happens that i'm a member because i'm an fmp as well and uh, so what can you tell me about the organization itself? How many members are you currently representing and uh, what are the missions and goals?
1: Okay. So the American Association of Nurse Practitioners is um, actually the largest professional membership organization for nurse practitioners of all specialties um, across the world. We represent the interests of more than that, there are over 270,000 licensed nurse practitioners in the U.S. currently. We're going to get more data out after the first of the year, and I think that number is going to push close to 300,000. We provide the legislative leadership at the local, state, and national levels, advocating for health policy, promoting excellence in practice. In fact, we just recently um, issued new um, scope of practice of nurse practitioners as well as standards of practice uh, documents. We advocate for education, uh, research. We have a very, um, uh, we have an affinity for research. And um, we also establish standards that best serve um, nurse practitioners, patients, and other healthcare consumers. We call ourselves the voice of the nurse practitioner. And we represent the interests of NPs as providers of high quality, cost-effective, comprehensive, uh, patient-centered healthcare. Your listeners can actually get more information information. Uh, on our website, aant.org, or they can locate an NP in their community if they'd like to see a nurse practitioner by visiting wechoosenps.org.
0: And from your, like I mentioned, I'm a member of both. From your perspective, what have been the differences between the organizations? What possibly could we learn from each other? In the past, there's always been a discussion, at least in the CRNA community, that uh, CRNAs have always kind of been on the outside of standard professional nursing. And NPs may feel the same way. I'm not entirely sure. How do you see that from your career?
1: Well, I think, so you're a member of AANP and AANA as a CRNA. Mm-hmm. So you're a member I of am. AANA as well. Um, yep. I think that I don't see the, the CRNAs as outside of professional nursing. I think that in professional nursing, we all have our own little houses uh, that we live in. You know, we, we have uh the nurse practitioners are, are generally primary care providers. Ninety percent of NPs are um, are primary care providers uh, practicing, you know, in family practice, pediatrics, um, women's health, adult Gero, um, and then ten percent are practicing in the specialties. Um, and the the CRNAs are are uh, providing anesthesia care. And so you have your own special special area of professional nursing. I think both AANP and AANA work very closely together to coordinate efforts to further our shared priorities. Both associations are dedicated to providing our members with the resources and materials needed to make changes happen at the state and federal level, Um, you know, the regulatory language that affects our practices. While we at times do focus on slightly different issues based on our members' needs, Um, you know, the needs of the CRNAs are are somewhat different than the the needs of nurse practitioners, we definitely support each other and show that we as an APRN community are standing together. And um, through our sustained work together, we can actually continue to learn from each other and achieve success. Um, I actually went to your your conference in Chicago uh, a couple of months ago. And I had I had a wonderful time, and it was a, it was great meeting all of my CRNA colleagues, and I found the conference fascinating. So um, I think that we actually have more similarities than we do um, differences. We have different clinical areas that we focus in, but as advanced practice nurses, I think um, we have a lot more um, uh, shared work that we do.
0: Excellent. We get a lot of discussion sometimes in the sometimes in the CRNA community about oh my God, you know, we're opening another schools opening, we're going to oversupply, and I know I've heard the same thing in the MP community when I talk to people. What's your perspective on where we're headed as far as needs?
1: Well, I think what's interesting is um, by the year uh, twenty thirty, we're going to be short. Uh, I don't quote me on this number, but I believe uh, we're going to be short uh, fifty thousand primary care physicians that. Um, primary care physicians are um, are just getting older, and physicians are not choosing primary care as their number number one clinical focus area upon graduation. So there's always going to be a need for primary care providers, um, and as as our population continues to age, and so the general population is aging, primary care physicians are are aging. And physicians aren't choosing to go into primary care as their first specialty, especially in those rural areas. And rural areas are, are really having a, a hard time of, of finding primary care providers. And so, um, we there's definitely going to always be a need for primary care providers. And as I said, ninety percent of nurse practitioners are primary care providers. I actually um, I live just outside New Orleans right now, but. I, um, upon, uh, graduation from my, um, uh, my nurse practitioner program 23 years ago, I practiced in a small town in, uh, Northeast Louisiana. And, um, there was my clinic and there was a, a small clinic down the road. And, uh, the, the physician that was practicing there was at least 80 years old. You know, he was the typical small, you know, small Southern town, um, physician that, you know, you, you see on TV, um, he's, he's gone now. And so the only clinic that's in that town now is, is they are still there staffed by nurse practitioners in the, the town that my mother lives in, which I grew up in, um, when I was growing up, there were about, um, five or six, um, family practice physicians practicing there and, um, to serve that community. And there was one nurse practitioner, and now there's only one family practice physician practicing there and five or six nurse practitioners. So um, especially in those rural areas where we're not finding um, uh, physicians, we find that nurse practitioners are going into those communities. And, and in a lot of cases, the nurse practitioners actually already live in those communities. So you have people who are registered nurses who are going back to school to get advanced education and training and national certification to provide primary care and they already live in those communities that they're serving. So it's really nice. I
0: think I think you nailed it. I mean I think you nailed that answer. The reality I think for us is that there's there's an aging population, there's only going to be greater needs downward economic on healthcare costs overall. Access to care is one of the biggest problems you hear about on the news every day. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're in an oversupply situation. I think we're barely keeping up. And and that's the reality.
1: Yeah, I think that that we're barely keeping up. And, and look, I think that there, um, there are a lot of incentives for, for physicians to go to the rural areas. My son is in medical school right now. And when he registered for medical school, he could actually register for a rural health track that would have prepared him um, kind of uh, at a rapid pace to be, prepare him to be a family practice physician in a, in a rural uh, Louisiana town. Um, they couldn't fill those spots. So it's, it's a tough place to go and move rural, you know, rural Arizona, rural Louisiana, if, if you're not from that community. And um, uh, if you want to move in from, from another community from a city to this rural area, Uh, It it might not be as easy raising your family. There definitely aren't the amenities that there are in these larger uh, cities where the medical centers are. Um, So it's something to consider, but there's always going to be, people always need health care. Our population's aging. Um, The demand's going to be there and it's just increasing. And to tell you what, the the way we've been doing health care to this point in the United States hasn't garnered us the results that we would like to see. So something's got to change. We have to start thinking outside the box to really meet the needs of all the patients out there.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, nurse practitioners, APRNs as a whole are attracted sometimes to rural areas just because they get the opportunity to work to full scope of practice. And that will bring them to an area that maybe they weren't planning to live there or they didn't have ties there. But for physicians, their scope of practice is unlimited no matter where they go. So the incentive to move to those smaller areas is much less.
1: Correct and and in those rural areas, it's it, and, and or like the community I work in that's that's a uh, medically underserved area, I feel like I'm making the biggest difference for the in the lives of my patients because they know that there's somebody who's taking a special interest in them that cares about them and is taking that extra time to to make sure that their needs are met. You know, health is not just the absence of disease. Health is really. Um, a, a physical, mental, and social well-being, and I think that that's something that, um, in nurse practitioners, you know, speaking from a from a primary care perspective, I think that's something that nurse practitioners do so well is that we look at not only their physical well-being, but we, we look at their their um, mental health and we assess their their uh, social determinants of health and things like that. So we really have this holistic, whole person approach and. And and just the same way, I think CRNAs, you guys have a, you're doing more than just putting the patients to sleep. You're really, um, you're assessing the patients, making sure they understand um, their pain, their surgery. Um, I've had a few surgeries in my life and I'm very thankful for my CRNAs um, that are, that are putting me to sleep because I know they're going to be there. Right. When I go to sleep, they're going to be there when I wake up and they're going to come check on me afterwards and, and make sure my pain is managed appropriately, too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's a that's an important point that there's a there's definitely a rewarding feeling recognizing that if, if you were not there, particularly in your community this is a perfect example. I mean, there was one other provider that that guy's retired. It's just you. If, you. if you weren't there, who would be there if that clinic didn't exist? Yeah. And then these people have to travel. You know, and that that's not possible for everybody.
1: And the, the closest hospital, um, you know, this was twenty three years ago, and this is still the case now. The closest hospital was thirty miles away, and um, we actually, I, I had people that would come in. Uh, we built the practice up from about four to five patients a day. At the at the end of the um, a couple of years, we were seeing twenty five to thirty patients a day, and. Um, in the rural areas, you, you get anything can come in the door. I had a, a guy come in during hunting season one time that was still dressing a, a deer, and it had a huge laceration in his arm, and um, he was bleeding heavily. I had another um, mother carry in her her dead eight year old daughter, who had had an anaphylactic reaction um, after having a dental procedure. You know, it was. Uh, w- w- when you're in a small community like that providing care, you're the, you're the first level of, of healthcare for these, for these people. And without that, um, I I think we really just see, um, uh, poorer numbers, poorer outcomes. So these small communities definitely need these, these small clinics to provide them the healthcare they need.
0: Absolutely. Sick people live everywhere. It doesn't matter how, what the
1: population is. Exactly. And, um, uh, Picking up the phone and calling nine one one doesn't get you an ambulance in five minutes um, right. in these small towns.
0: That's right. And I just read a, a news article from Texas about hospitals, small hospitals, closing. They're often prim- primarily staffed by APRNs, and they said that you know with an increase in distance, there was an increase in about six six percent mortality rate. So these patients had worse outcomes because they had to travel so far to get the, the nearest territory care center when they could be easily stabilized in their hometown. Exactly. people were willing to be there. Yeah,
1: that's a a great testament to the the purpose of those those small rural hospitals and why um, it's so critical that we keep them open.
0: So, you know, as you know, the AMP recognized the uh, executive order from the Trump administration talking about focusing on removing regulatory barriers in states and federally for APRNs, CRNAs, NPAs. How do you think this will play out in the rule and how could it, change our healthcare delivery. There already seems to be some significant organized medicine resistance to it. Um, But what do you think is going to happen? I I know that the PAs had supervision removed from their national requirement, but it's now a state thing.
1: Yeah, they did. And, um, you know, we're really pleased that the administration issued um, this order, especially um, Section 5, which will expand seniors' direct access to APRN care and it'll also ensure Medicare payment for healthcare services is based not on the professional providing them, but actually on the service itself, so on payment parity. Um, we view this as a major step forward for Medicare patients and for taxpayers. Um, you know, right now, um, if, if I see a patient, I diagnose them with high blood pressure and diabetes. Um, I um, provide, do all the necessary tests. write the appropriate prescriptions, uh, get the treatment plan going. And my physician colleague uh, sees the exact same patient and does the same thing. The reimbursement, I get paid 85% of what my physician colleague is paid for the same care, uh, realizing that we're doing the exact same thing. So I'm definitely not providing 85% of of the care. I'm providing 100% of the care as well. So I think payment parity is important, you know, equal payment for equal services. And so we see that um, as very important and, um, you know, based on on the service itself. We anticipate that the Secretary is going to promulgate uh, proposed regulation that will implement um, what was set forward in Section 5. And we're just eager to see those proposals. I think it's going to take time. Um, The President, in his executive order, gave a year to the secretary to um, get these things um, uh, hammered out. I was very pleased to meet with secretary Azar about a week or so after the executive order came out. And um, so I was very pleased with the meeting with secretary Azar. He is very much understands what um, advanced practice nursing is capable of. He um, is very concerned uh, about the rural areas and getting access to care for those in the rural areas and um, understands the importance of um, nurse practitioners in helping to meet the needs of those patients. So I'm just uh, eager to see what the proposals uh, uh, bring forth as as the month's approach. Um, we see it as a very positive thing, and um, we're very glad that the administration has taken such a bold step as to... Um, make these recommendations and really make a, uh, take a step on behalf of of patients and really um, making effort to improve healthcare and healthcare access.
0: And, you know, I think people have the opinion that, oh, well, but it's only 15% difference, but that margins are, are slim in, in family practice. I mean, it's just how it is. And so ultimately that could be the difference between your clinic existing and not thriving or not bringing in an additional provider or not having the resources to do, other services at your clinic or not I think it's a huge huge step forward
1: well it is and in some, some nurse practitioners own their own clinic and so mm-hmm. they're not they're not um, having to pay less for office supplies to earn clinic overhead um, to keep their doors
0: That's open 85 percent
1: yeah they're not paying 85 percent of of the rent um so if you know if they've got a a $5,000, 10000 a month rent bill, they're not paying, you know, only 85% of that. So payment parity, we see, is uh, is very important to keep um, the doors open and get these clinics running and certainly in building clinics and, and getting um, more healthcare services to more people.
0: Absolutely. And with the evidence behind practice for nurse practitioners, great outcomes, great quality, great service, uh, you know, why is it that organized medicine fights so hard against these things to me i i see i see my, my physician my physician partners in my case surgeons or other family practice physicians as as colleagues right you know i I want them to get paid better so that they they can continue their service as well. What is the impetus to not allow that? Is it surely about money or What's your perspective?
1: I think that, you know, the physician colleagues that, that I work with don't have an issue with this. I think that there is a, a small faction of, of physicians that um, are resistant to change. Um, let's face it, the, the, the medical model is changing. Health care is changing. Um, is changing. Uh, we've got to modernize these outdated uh, practice guidelines uh, that are um, exist in in much of the country to really think outside the box and provide care to people that need it. Some people are very resistant to change. Um, the, the data is there. Nurse practitioner practice has been studied for uh, over 50 years. There are hundreds of studies that show that NP care is uh, equal to, and in some cases better than, uh, care uh, provided by physicians. When you look at outcomes for various diseases and things like that, you know, I think we're always going to have people that, that are opposed to change, um, but for the most part, I think um, many physicians understand nurse practitioners, appreciate nurse practitioners. We have a great working relationship. I, I think it's just a small faction that are making a lot of noise.
0: I think that's common in every profession. There's always a small faction that are that are that are resistant to any kind of change. I think that's pretty normal.
1: Yeah, and I think you guys have it with the anesthesia as well. So yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: I mean, I have lots of physician anesthesiologists that I that I talk to all the time. One that I just interviewed. I mean, these guys are not aggressively against CRNAs at all. I think just the opposite. But it's a small group that that have that you know very they're afraid. I think exactly. of, of things changing. Ultimately. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, things, things have to change. We have to look at doing things differently as long as the outcomes are there. Um, mm-hmm. n- nurse anesthesia care is very safe, very effective. And, and um, when I get put to sleep for my surgeries, I always have a CRNA and uh, I, I don't think twice. And uh, I insist on it. In fact, last time I had surgery, Um, an anesthesiologist came in and I I said, where's the CRNA? I want the CRNA. (laughs) Um, so it's, uh, you know, the, the, the model's changing and yeah, some people are just resistant.
0: And at this point, how many states have met this, the consensus model with full practice authority and what are the issues and restrictions in the ones that aren't? What are the primary things that, you know, nurse practitioners as a group are running into, To resolve those issues, or you know, the obstacles.
1: So, for nurse practitioners, there are 22 states plus the District of Columbia where uh, patients have full and direct access to NP care, um, where nurse practitioners can practice without any regulatory um, uh, restrictions on their uh, scope of practice. We continue to work with nurse practitioners and all of our APRN colleagues nationwide to advance full practice authority in every state. Um, In North Carolina. State legislation is moving forward that, if enacted, will give patients direct access to all four APRN roles. Um, in terms of challenges, many CRNA issues are related to the um, the governor opt-out provisions of Medicaid, and I'm sure you're well of well aware of those.
0: And so. You probably heard a little bit about the you know controversy in the in our anesthesia community, but also in medicine in general about credentialing, recredentialing, and uh, so we only have the one agency, the m b They're the they're the only one that exists for us. And the one of the interesting things when I became an FMP is I had to pick. There were two things to choose from, right? The AAMP's side and then the ANCC side, and I ended up going with the AAMP. Yay! And so thank you. Yeah, yeah, I was glad I did. And so ultimately. You have these two different options and has there been issues with that? Have there been, you know, a battle for that? What's the genesis of there being two as opposed to just one like we have?
1: Um, You know, I don't, I don't know the history on why we have uh, two different certification boards. I think all the national NP certification exams are rigorous. Um, They're psychometrically sound, legally defensible. They're all competency-based exams um, for knowledge and expertise in patient care as advanced clinicians. These certification boards themselves are accredited, uh, accredited themselves. So, as far as uh, those exams, I think um, both certification exams. Um, I think they're they're very equal. They're they're both sound. They are good tests for certification. Uh, I think a nurse practitioner could take a, a test from either um, the ANCC or aANP and be nationally certified and um, that would be a strong national certification now obviously as president of uh, the aANP I would love all nurse practitioners to be certified um, by aANP
0: and is there any contention between the two groups or I, I know you work together so how does how does that operate
1: um I don't know of any contention between the two groups. I think we, we work together on um, uh, many national initiatives as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, the certification board is, the AANP certification board is actually a separate entity from mm-hmm. AANP proper. Um, so that answer might better come, you know, better from actually them, yeah. come from them. But I can tell you that uh, we work well with all of our APRN colleagues. So I can't imagine that there's any contention um, at all.
0: Excellent. I think, you know, in our, in our organization, that's a, that's a lot of talk about that in the last few years. And I think it's swirling around medicine, too, with recredentialing and how all that works. And so it's become sort of a hot topic. Now, as far as uh, the AAMP and how you guys relate to physician assistants, my interaction with physician assistants is mostly surgical ones. And so, you know, they're doing a whole different role than what, um, you know, I would be as an FMP or if I, when I'm working as a CRNA, how is the relationship generally between nurse practitioners and physicians assistants? And how's the relationship between the AAPA and the AAMP?
1: Well, I think nurse practitioners and physicians assistants work well together. Um, you know, we're, where we are Many times, um, physicians, assistants, are primary care providers as well, and like all colleagues, we we work well together. The uh, two associations, the AANP and the AAPA, uh, work closely um, as we have several national issues that impact both professions as well as our patients. Um, for example, outdated Medicare regulations require that a, uh, require a physician signature. Even when an NP or PA is the patient's primary care provider and our patients need diabetic shoes, hospice, or other care services, those delays in care and the associated higher health costs are a shared concern that both organizations are both working to address. Recently, uh, the two organizations worked on legislation ensuring that millions of Americans and communities could have greater access to um, the medically-assisted therapies for substance abuse, abuse disorder by authorizing MPs and PAs to prescribe the buprenorphine for um, opioid uh, use disorder. So we there are a lot of issues that we work together on, on issues that affect um, our shared patients and our shared patient communities. Uh, professionally, I actually have a meeting with the president of the AAPA um, just in a couple of months to work on, um, to further talk about some shared um, issues.
0: It seems like there'd be a lot of overlap. When it comes to regulation, for sure.
1: Yeah. Even though, you know, we're, the, the uh, AAPA, the, the PAs are kind of um, monitored by a different board, you know, nurse practitioners have the nursing board, but, but you know, our colleagues share the same national issues uh, with us. So we have a lot of, of common ground that we share. So we work well together.
0: That's excellent. And from the perspective of the AAMP, I know that the the PAs have started looking into potential uh, title change, and I'm actually trying to talk to them about that. And uh, they've been talking about moving toward sort of a more autonomous practice. I don't know how they would, I don't want to mischaracterize what they want to do. So it's something to that degree where you're seeing this removal of physician supervision from the Medicare regulations, that kind of a thing. And then there's some state uh, things that are happening. What does, what what does the AAMP think of those things? What's their what's the perspective of the National Organization for Nurse Practitioners on that kind of a move?
1: Well, I think, you know, we know all too well the challenges and patient harm that comes when outdated licensure laws really impede professionals from from providing the care that they're educated and certified to provide. We also know that it's not just NPs and their patients that confront this mismatch. It's why we're part of a multi-professional effort called the Coalition for Patient Rights. That actually works to bring awareness to the choice in healthcare care um, providers that patients can choose to see what works collectively to remove outdated laws and barriers. I don't know much about uh, that's one of the reasons why I actually have a meeting with the uh, president of AAPA. But certainly, you know, we've had our own uphill battle on many issues, and I'm, uh, I'm sure our PA colleagues do as well. Um, and so I, I understand it. And, um, but beyond that, I really don't know enough about, um, that to really, uh, provide more information.
0: I think there's a lot of crossover.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of crossover. We, we don't oppose any work that any profession wants to do to be able to practice to the full scope of, of one's education and training.
0: This has been a lot of fun. Great interview. What last words of wisdom would you like to leave for the listeners out there uh, about APRNs, the AAMP, and where we're headed in healthcare over the next five to 10 years?
1: Oh, let's see. Well, we're about 10 years out from the APRN consensus model, and we've made tremendous strides in this 10 years' time, but we actually have a long way to go. In the long haul, this is about endurance. We need to stay together and we need to continue working together towards those core principles that ensure patients have real choices. Like when it comes to their provider, you know, provider of choice. Uh, I look forward to what's going to be coming in healthcare uh, in the upcoming years. I think with the the um, executive order that came out, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, great things. I think the organizations, uh, the, the APRNs, you know, CRNAs, nurse practitioners, etc., need to stay the course and stay together and just continue doing the work that we do and provide the best care that we can to our patients and their families um, so we can have the best possible patient outcomes all around.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and letting our listeners hear a little bit about the AMP and the president, Dr. Sophia Thomas.
1: Thank you so much. It was great to be here.
0: That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com.